This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Coming up on today's show is Alberta, no longer the place to be in Canada for a long time. People were flocking here, but now... We're actually losing people to other parts of the country. China's cryptocurrency crackdown is actually driving business to our country. It's an opportunity, but it does come with some risks. And speaking of risks, how about killer robots? They're already out there. They're already being used. And there's all kinds of concerns around them. We're going to talk about uh, a trend that I don't know if it's troubling or not. We'll find out. Um, But... You know, for years and years and years, we talked about Alberta's growing population and how it continued to see people moving here from other parts of the country for greater opportunities. But it's reversing that trend lately. We're seeing things switch. Um, It's not happening the way that it used to. In fact, Alberta is now losing people to other parts of the country. So... To get some insight on that, we're going to chat with Alicia Planinchich, who is an economist with the Business Council of Alberta. Alicia, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, when we're talking, I mean, we're not talking about, well, I guess in a way we are, uh, about 5,000 people in the last quarter alone. That's a fairly sizable number of people leaving Alberta, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. Uh So I think there are actually two things going on here. So one is that, you know, a lot of folks postponed their move in 2020. We didn't see a lot of people moving province to province, you know, for obvious reasons. And so quarter two of this year was the first time we did see people moving again. Um, Unfortunately for Alberta, we're also seeing kind of the same trend come back, which is that we are losing people to other provinces. And this is a reversal, right? I don't know how long this has been happening, but for a long time, Alberta was drawing a lot of people from other parts of the country, were we not? Oh, it it definitely was. You know, up until, you know, 2015, we saw a huge inflow of folks from other provinces to Alberta. Um, Unfortunately, though, since the downturn since 2016, other than a couple of quarters, Alberta has pretty consistently seen a loss to other provinces. Where are they going? Do we know? I mean, is there one place that seems to be attracting people now? Yeah, yeah, so we do. Um, so BC has is kind of a, a, a sore thumb for Alberta and has been actually for a few years now. We see about 40% of, of our losses are really to BC. And I want to break this down a little bit. It, it means two things. So one is that more people are leaving Alberta and moving to BC, but it also means that fewer people are leaving BC and moving to Alberta. Because it used to be a bit of a back and forth, right? Right. Yeah. So we certainly see like an ebb and flow with, you know, the economy. Obviously, when Alberta's economy was doing really, really well and had huge amounts of growth, a lot of folks moved from B.C. to Alberta. Um, And unfortunately, since the crash, right, we've basically seen this trend reverse. Yeah. What about other provinces? Is this something that's happening in other parts of the country or is Alberta a bit of an outlier where we seem to be exporting people? 
Yeah, so I would say Alberta is probably one of the more extreme cases. Um, You know, more recently, Ontario did actually lose quite a bit of folks in quarter two. Now, whether this is something to do with COVID and people, you know, leaving the big city and going to more rural parts of Canada, or whether this is a longer term trend, I think it's a little bit too early. But I think Alberta is unique in that it has seen, you know, this really persistent trend for several years now. Um, Yeah, and, you know, I imagine it's a little early to sort of say, well, this is why this is happening, and I'm sure there's a number of different factors involved, but underlying situation here is the economic prospects in Alberta right now just aren't what they were two years, five years, ten years ago. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, a lot of the news reports really focused when they saw the most recent data on, you know, COVID-related, like the COVID cases, economic recovery, and my sense is those are playing maybe a, a, a small part in what we're seeing, but I think the bigger trend is really those longer-term trends at play, right? Like you're talking about, we've seen high unemployment, we've seen really high long-term unemployment. Um, and so, yeah, job opportunities have shifted and, and individuals have really shifted to where those new job opportunities are. So is it possible to just, I mean, the pandemic messes up everything when you're trying to do any of these sorts of things because it's so extraordinary is the anticipation that things will settle down a little bit more once we get through the pandemic or can you even make that kind of a calculation yeah i mean i think it's honestly up to alberta as far as what happens with those longer term trends you know i think economic recovery is one thing but i think a longer term grant plan for alberta and for its prosperity is really what is needed to you know, attract folks in their 20s and 30s again to the Mm. same degree that we were. Yeah, interesting. For so long, we talked about how people were coming here in droves and uh, times have changed. Interesting stuff, Alicia. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. That is Alicia Planinchich, who is The Economist with the Business Council of Alberta. So talking about Alberta's economic issues, Canada's economic issues, as things are going up and down or coming out of the pandemic and the growth is there. It's very, very small, though. Very, very small, as we just reported by StatsCan. Uh, So one area that we could see some growth in is cryptocurrency. Apparently, some of these crypto companies are coming to Canada. Wow, there's alliteration. Cryptocurrencies coming to Canada. Um, Why? Well, because they're having a hard time operating where they traditionally have in China. Things are changing there. So let's see. Are there some concerns? Is this all good news? Let's get details on this. We're going to chat with Jonathan Ip, who is a cryptocurrency lawyer at Toronto-based Iterative Law. Uh, Jonathan, thank you for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Uh, Glad to be on. Okay, so let's just start here. When we're talking about cryptocurrency businesses and companies, what exactly are we talking about here? We're we're talking about um, businesses that, uh, broadly speaking, use um, what's known as uh, blockchain technologies. It's um, basically a technology, um, it's almost like a a ledger, uh, so it's a way of keeping track of transactions. But um, uh, it it allows transactions to be um, uh, sort of the record of all these transactions to be kept across um, multiple computers all across the world, um, internet-based. So inherently, the technology is actually um, global in nature, which is uh, a very interesting aspect of it. Um, Cryptocurrency. 
cryptocurrency sort of came out of it, um, sort of broadly speaking, it's a, a way, uh, it's, a, it's a type of digital asset, so uh, it's not physical, um, that you can uh, transact with, you can transfer. Um, and so I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about Bitcoin and mm-hmm, Ethereum. Yeah. So those are the sorts of things that we're talking about. How big are these businesses? Are we talking, I mean, I mean is it all just computers or is there a lot of staff that's involved as well and, and infrastructure and facilities and that sort of thing? Yeah, so so for crypto mining companies, um, it, it's mostly the uh, the equipment itself. So um, over the the, the years, um, the specialized uh, computer equipment has actually been developed to uh, to to be very efficient in in crypto mining. Um, so it's it's a lot of facilities. There's definitely um, uh, maintenance, uh, you know, operational. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sort of aspects, so you definitely need people around um, to sort of make make sure things are, are running smoothly. Um, so, uh, depending on the on the size of the operations and uh, and just sort of the, the needs, I think of the operations, um, you, there's definitely some potential for uh, for, for additional jobs, economic some employment. Yeah, which is great. That's mm-hmm. fantastic. So, yeah. why are they leaving China? What's going on in China? Are they cracking down on these kinds of operations? Yeah, so so China's um, since 2017, they've actually, um, and they said it's over the last several years. Uh, they kind of keep reiterating that um, they view um, sort of cryptocurrencies as, as sort of a dangerous um, and, and sort of unpredictable technology. Uh, and so uh, the most recent, um, and this just sort of happened in the last few months, um, was they, uh, they they actually um, started uh, kicking out crypto miners. So historically, a lot of um, uh, businesses or companies in uh, um, uh, crypto mining. Companies Companies were actually based in China because uh, they were able to get access to cheap electricity, um, you know, uh, uh, personnel, uh, and locations to do it. Um, but but China has actually been cracking down on them since um, probably uh, say in the summer, and then recently they've reiterated um, even more forcefully this year. Uh, what's interesting is they they, uh, they seem to have coordinated uh, a number of the regulators have actually coordinated uh, with the banks to also say you know um, crypto is not welcome here. Um, uh, you know, any businesses even transacting in crypto shouldn't be doing it. So they've been very explicit about that. What is the primary concern? They just don't like the technology itself, or is there some sort of impact these operations have on their country? I, I think it's probably a, a few things. Um, I mean, one of the things that, that they've been focusing on from a governmental level is actually creating a, uh, a digital currency, so the digital one, uh, which um, uh, you, you may have heard of. So they've actually been taking, um, looking at this technology, and, and they, they look at the technology, and uh, they, they're definitely um, interested in using the technology, but mm-hmm. they want to create their own digital currency. And other countries have been sort of looking at that as well. So effectively being able to print money um, traditionally, so like fiat currencies, but in a digital manner that uh, they effectively can control through their central banking system. So what one potential concern around cryptocurrencies, and, and China is not the only one that, that has these issues, so, you know, countries um, all across the world are sort of struggling with how they want to deal with cryptocurrencies, is how, how do you regulate something that uh, that is um, inherently sort of created by by multiple you know computers all over the world? Yeah, that, and the whole point is really not to control. be regulated, right? That's the basis of it. A part, part of it, I, I think... It, it, it originally came as a backlash. I'd say Bitcoin started more as a backlash to the 2008 credit crunch, right? Uh, where, um, you know, correctly or not, um, there's a perception that the centralized banking functions, the institutional, and that's like basically um, it, the entire financial system was ground to a, halt, to a complete stop and, and almost collapsed because um, a, a few people that were controlling the financial system were able to uh, basically increasingly put risk on the yeah. entire system without the input of other people. And so, in, in this was 
is sort of a way of kind of going the opposite direction, which is what if we could create a system uh, where transfer value could actually be uh, controlled not by a centralized system, but by a decentralized system through consensus, through people actually using the system. And so you're right in that, in that it, it's inherently not supposed to, um, inherently difficult to regulate, yeah. um, difficult to control. Um, but there are definitely uh, over the years, um, you know, regulations around, say, you know, anti-money laundry, know your client um, uh, type regulations. A lot of countries have actually put in place um, uh, specific regulations to deal with virtual asset service providers, so those actually interact with crypto. So you might not be able to control the system, the the, you know, the blockchain system, but you can definitely regulate um, to a large extent the people who actually interact with it. So um, it could be the financials, uh, but the banks, it could be the the, the other financial, um, you know, players, um, uh, securities providers, those sorts of things. Um, now, when we talk about you know. Canadian companies getting involved here or these companies moving to Canada, when you're talking about an internet-based business like this, is it actual physical companies that were operating in China relocating their operations to Canada, or is it Canadian companies jumping in to fill a void as these Chinese companies close? I mean, how is this working out? So a, a number of ways. I mean, uh, even before this, we, we uh, in Canada, we we do have a number of uh, crypto mining businesses. Actually, a couple of public ones. Um, you know, uh, like Hut8, for example, is probably one of the more more uh, sort of larger ones that's listed on TSX, uh, Riot Blockchain, and so on. So we do have existing uh, uh, companies that that do crypto mining as a business. Um, the the opportunity I think that um, they and other uh, smaller businesses are seeing is that with a push uh, uh, since these existing crypto miners in China are being pushed out, and I, I forget the, the stat exactly, but at one point, I think uh, something like 46% of, of Bitcoin mining was done in China, in, in that region. So you can see there's actually a, a, a large opportunity for not just Canada, but other countries yeah. and, and other um, sort of entrepreneurial businesses to take advantage of, well, if, if the, that equipment's not being used or those businesses are, can't operate there anymore, what can we do here? Um, so can, should, can we buy the equipment from them, uh, perhaps at discounted rates? Can we set up operations here and, yeah. and mine it ourselves? Can we enter into re- arrangements where they still own the business, but now we're operating it for them in Canada, in a in a you know in an area, uh, in a country where uh, they have less of a political risk as a result, right? So less likely that um, you know the entire system is going to be shut down overnight. Um, and so those are the opportunities that um, that that the crypto miners in Canada are seeing. Um, I, I will say that um, when the first crackdown sort of happened back in the summer, um, there was a lot of uh, talk about. And large, some of the larger miner, miners setting up operations in the U.S. and Texas, in particular, yeah. um, which and, and so, but that's sort of trickling into Canada as well because we've got, um, well, broadly speaking, you know, a, a similar or, or better electricity rates. Um, I think one of the actual advantages is that in certain parts of Canada, uh, like northern Alberta, Manitoba, uh, northern Quebec, the the, the climate is actually better for the equipment because uh, these are fundamentally computers so they generate yeah. heat and um, you know you're putting that in a location like Texas where it's hot they're not going to last as long or you're gonna have to spend a lot of electricity you know just just cooling them or as you put it into a more temperate location uh, like in Canada you know your equipment's actually going to run better and it's going to last longer so that is definitely an advantage um, and then in, 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 on, on top of that a lot of the electricity that we're talking about and and this kind of goes to um, uh, Elon Musk sort of um, was was ta- was talking about some of the dangers of uh, the environmental impact and in, in, in sort of, um, of of Bitcoin mining, um, you know, months ago, and uh, that sort of caused caused a bit of a kerfuffle. But uh, there, with the increasing 
um, desire to see um, either zero impact or low impact or even environmentally friendly um, all alternatives. Uh, the, the fact that you know Canada's um, electricity is generated uh, a lot by natural resources. So you know hydro yep. um, in, in Alberta. You know we've got the uh, the the off gassing. So you know the, the the natural gas you would normally flare or um, or, or have to off gas anyway in order to access the the oil. Uh, you can actually take advantage of that and use that to generate electricity and uh, just you know, putting it into the environment. So ESG, environmentally friendly Bitcoin, is uh, is something that a lot of uh, I think uh, companies and miners have been talking about, particularly in Canada. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, opportunity is opportunity, but like you say, it's there. There are things that need to be considered, and I know that the environmental concerns around it have been big, and uh, a mm-hmm. lot of places have a lot of problems with that. So if we can move it in a greener direction, it seems even more attractive then. Yeah, for for sure. I mean, I, I I mean, right now, I don't think you you necessarily see a, a premium for quote unquote sort of green Bitcoin, yeah. but um, th- there's a lot of talk about that, and there are definitely businesses out there that are are. And if, if you're in Canada and you actually have access to say hydro electricity, I mean, that's 100 percent renewable, and if you're using that to say do your mining, you can very safely say, hey, the, the Bitcoin that I create is actually um, environmentally friendly, as opposed to uh, you know the like in, in China, um, uh, a lot of the uh, electricity. While, while hydro serve for part of the year, they also do use coal, right? So not, not exactly the uh, the best um, uh, source of electricity, yeah. and, and same same other parts of uh, the world. So I think there is an advantage there, and I think as we see this sort of movement towards more envi- environmentally friendly um, crypto, environmentally friendly sort of uh, regulations, and, and interest in just environmentally friendly products generally, I think there's an advantage there for. Uh, uh, companies that are setting up in Canada or, or operating in Canada. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting uh, opportunity presenting itself. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Appreciate your time. No, no, no problem. Uh, uh, thanks a lot for uh, for the chat. And uh, uh, yeah, any any uh, companies that are interested in in, uh, in looking at Canada, I, I definitely think it's a great place to be. Uh, lots of opportunity here. Yeah, uh, sounds for, like in it. This space. Definitely. Thanks, Jonathan. Appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Shane. Okay. Take care. Yeah, you too. That's Jonathan Ip who is a cryptocurrency lawyer at Toronto-based Iterative Law. Killer robots. That's what we're talking about, really. Killer robots, that's what they're called. They're basically... Well, they're they're military developments that we're going to be talking about here, and they have poured billions and billions of dollars into this. And basically, they're autonomous killer robots. And obviously, you can see the red flags that immediately are raised for a lot of people when we're talking about this. So let's have some discussions about some of the concerns that surround killer robots. We're chatting with James Dawes now, professor of English at McAllister College. James, thank you for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so first of all, let's define what we're talking about. When we say killer robots, people think Terminator. Um, Now, that's not what we're talking about. These aren't, you know, robot soldiers in a sense that they don't look like them. But what exactly are we talking about when we say killer robots? So they are military weapons that can select and engage their targets without human supervision once they're activated. So while Schwarzenegger was a simulated human, these are often quite familiar. So the most recent one that was in the news was the Cargo 2, which looks just like a little mini helicopter, and it selects its target and flies to it and detonates. Uh, so they can they can take all sorts of forms. Yeah, like miniature tanks almost. I mean, all kinds of, you know, they, they look like robots. But um, when we take a look at these things, how far down the road are we? Like you say, some of these have been used already. They've probably already killed people, right? Like they're in operation. So we have reason to believe that in the Libyan conflict, 
recently, the Cargo 2 was used to track down, hunt, and, and kill uh, retreating forces. This is strongly implied, although not definitively said in the EU report. And if that's true, that's a red line that's been crossed. That'll have been the first time in, in human history that an autonomous robot has killed a human being. Okay, so as often is the case when it comes to technology, we're, we're talking about trying to play catch-up in terms of some of the concerns that are raised. But let's go through the concerns first. Um, what has you most worried about this technological development? Well, the biggest worry, the sort of existential concern, is that this is going to start a new global arms race that has the potential to be humanity's final arms race. And that's for two reasons. The first is that these weapons, while now they are not yet integrated into nuclear weapons or biological weapons yeah. or chemical weapons, they will eventually be if, if we don't do something now to stop them. And the idea of autonomous robots being able to choose when to launch a weapon of mass destruction is terrifying, which leads to the second concern. Um, that doesn't even need to happen for the nuclear balance that currently holds in the world to be catastrophically disrupted. If a nuclear power believes its enemy will achieve that strategic dominance, that decisive strategic dominance, they very well could believe a preemptive strike will be their only option. So the, the very fragile balance we already have will be shattered, I think, if we allow ourselves to get into this kind of arms race. Okay. Aside from that, what about the fact that we are putting the power of life and death into, well, the hands, I guess, of a robot? I mean, I can see that they'll make mistakes, right? Yeah, this is a big concern. I think I think we should always have human supervision of the choice to kill other humans, and, and that is precisely what we're leaving behind here. Uh, a weapons expert named Paul Shari gives an example to give a sense of how bad this is. So a runaway gun is a machine gun that that breaks down and it begins to fire and it won't stop firing until it runs out of ammunition. Okay. This happens every so often and it's, it's extremely dangerous. It, many people can die. Um, but fortunately, these weapons, because all machines break down, when they break down, they have a human operator who can break the ammunition link or point the gun somewhere where people aren't. And it is precisely that which we lack with autonomous weapons. If they begin to run amok, there is, in principle, nobody to stop them, and they will continue to destroy until they run out of ammunition. Yeah, I mean, it, what about, I mean, we have rules of war. We have certain, I mean, as crazy as that sounds to a lot of people, we do. Um, we, we don't know that these robots will respect any of these rules of law, right? Yeah, the rules of war are really, they're, they're the kind of final stopgap we have that separates war from honor from massacre. And they've been around since 1864 with the Geneva Conventions. And they're premised, at least in part, on the idea of criminal responsibility. That is, we can hold individuals criminally responsible for their actions. And if you talk to people who work in the humanitarian field, there are, there are perpetrators all over the world who will who will tell you they are stopping what they're doing because they fear prosecution. It is a powerful deterrent effect. When you have autonomous weapons, this whole system begins to collapse. If, a, if someone deploys an autonomous weapon in good faith, thinking it'll operate as intended, but then that weapon in a constantly dynamic, changing environment ends up committing what we count as war crimes, who will you hold responsible? Right. It wouldn't make sense to hold a robot responsible, but I think it would be unethical also to hold responsible the soldier who is not responsible for those independent decisions of the robot. So the whole system begins to break down, and if that system begins to break down, this really is the last thing we have to keep some sort of humanity in war. It is so frightening, and I think, you know, when we, when we 
and it's ridiculous as it is, we've all seen Terminator and we all see, you know, yeah. some of the risks of some of these sorts of things. So when this technology is being developed and the question is, why are we waiting now to try and address some of these concerns? Like we know once this technology is out there, trying to put it back in the bottle, making sure it doesn't fall into the wrong hands, it isn't misused. All those things are almost impossible to do. So how can we possibly try and regulate or in some way control this at this point? So we are in a a good position, although really it may be our last chance. With nuclear weapons, for instance, the the toothpaste is out of the tube and yeah. trying to put that big in back in is a disaster. It's it's worth trying. Right now we're not there. Autonomous weapons research has developed, they're being used, but it's in the infancy really of what it could be if we let it go unchecked. And so groups like Human Rights Watch or the Campaign to Stop Killer Robots are working with the UN to try and get meaningful human control of these weapons established. And it, it can be done. There are effective examples of preemptive bans on technology in the 90s, for instance. Uh, an effective ban on the use of blinding laser weapons was put into place, and, and that really helped solve that problem. So we can still do that now, but time is running out, and it's important for people to begin agitating for it. And when we talk about an arms race, you know, focused on these, um, obviously we know the U.S., I think it spent $18 billion or something in, in this area of technology. Do we know what other countries are doing? Has, it, has that arms race already kicked off? It has kicked off, and major militaries around the world Turkey, China, Russia—they're um, all—they're all investing, and and they're investing in, in their own programs, some of which we know about, and some of which we don't. Um, so, so it is on the verge of, of slipping out of control. And and the problem isn't even—I mean, of course, the problem is these major militaries, but the other problem is that these weapons will not remain in the hands no, of, course of not. major militaries. Yeah, they're going to spread just like. Just like nuclear weapons, we fear they will spread. Just like the Kalashnikov rifle has spread all over the globe. And then you have the problem of insurgent groups, domestic and international terrorists, having the capacity to launch these weapons wherever they want without really being traced. Frightening, frightening prospects, no doubt. Um, James, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. James Daw who is a professor of English at uh, McAllister College. So there you have it, killer robots. I mean, have we learned nothing from the movies? For goodness sake, last week we're talking about some people recreating the, the woolly mammoth. Sure, the cute, fuzzy woolly mammoth. It's a dinosaur. We know what happens when we bring back dinosaurs because we all saw Jurassic Park. Now we're talking about creating killer robots. Have you not seen Terminator? Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.